0: Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about competitive balance in English football. Really focusing on the Premier League for the most part. Now, obviously in the last few days, Der Spiegel, the German magazine, has come out with some revelations regarding the concept of a European Super League. So essentially I have sort of 10, 12 of the biggest clubs in Europe sort decided effectively put in motion plans for a super league. So the original sort of 10, 11, 12 members would be life members. you'd have another sort of 10 clubs that would be sort of eight to ten clubs that would be effectively invited in. you'd have group stages, effectively sort of a rejigged champions league, but with the dices loaded. So, in other words, the, I think one of the, the clubs that was mentioned who would be invited would be Marseille. Now, clearly, if you're comparing Marseille to Barca, Real, Bayern Munich, Man City, they're just not going to be competitive. They are there for window dressing. So, because the Stade Velodroms are a you know, lovely stadium. You know, France is a relatively large European market. And the fans are, you know, loud, but they're not there to win it. You know, having a group stage. All these little bits and pieces really effectively mean that it's it's a cash grab, but not. On, it was, I guess, unlikely to really succeed. But the idea was, is it was a bargaining position with UEFA with regards to getting more money and more power for the big clubs at the extent to the extent where competitive balance is damaged now we've already seen where competitive balance has been you know really systematically altered in the last you know 15-20 years you know the late 90s and early 2000s you had teams like Deportivo La Coruña you had Kaiserslautern you had Werder Bremen you had teams in and around Europe who were able to succeed. You had Lille able to win a title. Now, you did have dominant teams. Now, the Leon team of the 2000s, you know, were were a great team, but that wasn't, you know, they were great because they were a well run football club with good managers and good players. They had, you know, a fantastic youth system and they were a well organised football club. It wasn't you know that they had so much power in comparison with everybody else in France that they destroyed the league, like you know effectively what PSG are doing now. You know during that period of time, PSG spent huge amounts of money trying to compete with Lyon. You know they got in Ronaldinho. You know they spent money to try and be, you know effectively try and outspend Lyon, and trying to you know they recruited a lot of ageing players, but people were big reputations when they tried to get when they got Nicholas and Elka and it failed simply because it was badly coordinated they went through managers but if you now compare the Lyon team that you know had that sort of 8 9 10 year period of dominance in France with the PSG is that it's different leagues in other words PSG have just broken a record for the top 5 European leagues for the most wins to start a season so it's 12 the previous record was 11, which was the Tottenham team that won the League and Cup double in 1961. So that team was a fantastic team. You know, the first team to do the double in effectively in that century, so really 60 years. So, really, in the entire period when there was some concept of professionalism, the League and Cup double hadn't been done in England. And the English League was one of the most sort of Mature and sophisticated, you know, professional setups. If you're comparing it to Spain, Germany, France, yes, Bill Nicholson did spend money, but it was relative to everybody else in the league. Now, the problem with the PSG one is: look at how much money they've spent in comparison with every other French team. They they blown it out of the water. You know, the only time that they have managed to you know, not win the league title. Was when Monaco, you know, had a fantastic team that got all the way to the you know semi-finals of the European Cup, but immediately that team was broken up. You know, the the, the actual raison d'être, the design of Monaco was such that it was: well, buy young players, pump up their value, and sell them to you know other European clubs, but the interesting thing is if you wanted some form of competitive balance if you wanted there to be something close to you know what Jurgen Klopp was doing with Borussia Dortmund beating you know, Bayern Munich to the league title the only way that you could maintain that if you were Monaco was not to sell Kylian Mbappe to PSG and obviously now if you look at it you know Monaco are in a you know they're closer to the relegation zone than they are the Path of the French league they are not in any position right now to meaningfully compete with PSG none of the other french teams if you look at you know marseille they're spending some money but even with the redeveloped stade vélodrome in terms of how many fans psg have the reach that they have in terms of youth development and just the money that they're able to put into it it's It's unlikely that any French team will come within 10, 15, 20 points of them. And really, so the the only question that you have in French football with regards to it is, is the French league able to put enough challenge onto PSG that it won't then damage their ability to compete in Europe? In other words, it's almost too easy for PSG in the league, which means when they get to the upper end of the Champions League, when they're playing the Barca's, the Real's, they haven't been particularly competitive. And if you now look at you know what's happening in Italy, where you've had a dominant Juventus team, you have a dominant Bayern Munich team, and you've had a situation really in Spain that's been growing, where really it is Real Barca, and only recently in a sort of last last five to ten years, half Atletico made some form of challenge to that sort of duopoly now what that really leads us to is a regulatory question is that yeah what to what extent have we as fans allowed this to happen now i think if i if i look at it if you take the example of Salford They're currently at the moment top of the conference. They've had a fantastic start to the season, newly promoted, and they are owned by Peter Lynn, who owns Valencia, and partly by the class of 92, so the Man United players. Now, my point is is that Salford, historically, have been nowhere in non-league football. They have been resolutely small. They're a lovely small club, but they are not... Yeah, they weren't a sleeping giant. There wasn't a huge amount of scope for this club to get better. Yet they are now top of the, the conference and they are almost certainly likely to be promoted by the end of the season. Why? Well, why are they top? Well, it's it's pretty obvious. They have had more money put into them in comparison with a ordinary conference side in other words you know, the gates haven't gone up hugely enough to really merit that kind of expenditure really what it is you know for whatever reason you know the class of 92 and peter lim want salford to be a football league club and they are likely to get there you know, if not this season then next eventually they will spend enough money and they will get the combination right i mean one of their biggest signings was adam rooney who was playing in scotland for aberdeen who were you know second third you know competing with celtic and playing european football and he is and his contracts ran out at um, aberdeen and he's decided to move to so he's gone from the scottish premier league where you'd be in a situation where you'd be in the sort of champions league qualifiers the europa league qualifiers to playing you know non-league football so, obviously, he's not doing it out of the goodness of his heart. He's being paid enough money for it to make sense, to you, know, basically drop down three, four, five levels of football in one move. And that's the problem, is that well, what can you do if you're a conference team? You know, you've got Barnet, you've got Leighton Orient, you've got several clubs that have had league football who have gone up through the, the Pyramid, the hard way. So that means spending within your means, you know, developing a fan base, and yet you really, this year, because of the way how you know, the conference is set up, you know, the only guaranteed you know, league placing is if you win it, which at the moment, Southford are odds on. Everything else is you've got the, you know, an expanded playoffs, which go down to seventh for the remaining spot. So really, if, and as we expect, Southford do essentially batter the league, establish a, a dominant position, then really the league then just comes down to jostling for you know the playoff spot. And I just fundamentally disagree with it. I disagree with Jimmying the system to get this club that had no right and no expectation to ever be a league club. Now it is a league club. And I I don't really see what the the benefits are. I mean and this is where it's sort of to to bring it back to the Premier League is really my issue with man city is that I think that effectively i'd say ninety ninety five to ninety eight percent of the success man city have at the moment has absolutely nothing to do with man city football club you know, there is a fine history in the late sixties and the seventies man city were a big club that won things that did well in Europe, and they're an established you know upper echelon English team you know when they got relegated from the Premier League and then they got relegated from the championship that was big news that was headline news but historically Man City were not a hugely successful team. they got relegated in the eighties they got relegated in the nineties they had long periods of time where they were in the lower part of the top division, in the first division and in the Premier League. The size of the club really was commensurate with a top eight, top five team. Now through mismanagement, through anything and from really the overwhelming success of Man Man United has had an impact. But from the moment that Abu Dhabi took over that football club, the success is artificial. It is not commensurate with any period of Man City football. In other words, I think I was reading an article in the Guardian, and I think it was Summerby talking about his sort of the Man City team that he played for, and it was he played for a great Man City team in the sort of seventies. And he was then, and he sort of effectively was talking about Man City as a foothold. And he basically goes on to say, well, you know, the, the Man City football that they're playing now is just light years from what we were doing. And that's my point is that with, if you take Liverpool, if you take Tottenham and Arsenal, there's some correlation between the football that they play then and the football that they play now and how that's built the club. In other words, there's an expectation at Tottenham that you're supposed to play good football. There's an expectation of Liverpool that you have to. Poetry in motion. That's what the. There's a huge um, amount of Liverpool fans that go to a pub in Serpent and I you know, run into them occasionally. And that's what they would always shout out. Like, that's a football that they want Liverpool to produce because that's the football they've always produced under Shankly, Dan Fagan. Whereby, with Man City, the level of success is slightly different. In other words, the whole concept of the club is that it has to be very strategic, very well-run. So, in other words, the youth system has to be fantastic. The women's ha- you know, section of the football club has to be particularly well-run. Everything has to work in synergy. The, the practice facilities have to be fantastic. The stadium has to be. The organisation ha- is always done very, almost in slow motion. So in other words, you know, if you compare what the Qataris are doing at PSG, which is effectively using PSG as a way of boosting interest in French football. So in other words, the Qataris, for a beat in sport, got the their rights to the French League. Now that is something that if you you know marketed it well, if you you know, you could there's some benefit. There was ways of marketing the French League that, you know, commercially could be valuable, relatively speaking in comparison with Serie A, Bundesliga, La Liga and the Premier League. But What they've done is, and what they've had to do, which is slightly different from Man City, is they have had to boost interest. So in other words, they had to sign Cavani, Zlatan, Angel de They had to buy all of these players and Neymar to effectively boost interest. In other words, it's a question of... There's a million different ways that PSG could be quite successful... Without necessarily having the same level of fame, but the point is the fame is there for a reason. They have to do it. You know, it has to look particularly dazzling. In other words, you know, PSG could do well in Europe by playing maybe a fairly defensive brand of football, but that doesn't suit what the Qataris want. What they want is for them to not just be a you know quarter finalist, a semi finalist. They want them to play wonderful, very top sided football. It has to. All the stars have to be right at the front. You know it. You know even you know if you look at any of their defensive signings, they are always a lot more minor. You know, probably their most famous sort of defender would be you know Gigi Buffon, but that was a free transfer of a you know forty year old goalkeeper who's obviously not at his peak. Everything has to be put forward into the shop window, because the more popular PSG are. The more eyeballs you get on it in terms of beat in sport, and the more you know power, soft power that you gain from it. So, in other words, there's a partly a reason why PSG are lopsided, whereby Man City is a completely different ethos. In other words, you know, it's it's quite a slow process. So, in other words, they're not just they weren't just going to get Pep. What they had to do was they decided to get the backroom parts of it. So in other words, you get Ferenc Soriano, you get Tzicci Burgestane, which then means that the fundamental structure is in place so that when Pep Guardiola does turn up, it's all perfect. The youth system is in fabulous shape. The contracts are done well. The signings are all in place and so this is one of my sort of major criticisms of Pep Guardiola if I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent is that he always manages football. he's like a bellwether in other words if your youth system is fantastic if your infrastructure is fantastic in terms of the training ground in terms of the ground if you have a you know huge budget you end up with Pep Guardiola he's not actually functionally interested in yetting due to that stage so in other words he's not someone who wants to basically turn up at the ground floor and work his way up through his magic in sorting out the youth system you know effectively like a Johan Cruyff did in other words Johan Cruyff was a decent manager I'd say he's a good manager but what his actual success at Barcelona was the ideology side of it you know, making sure La was as fantastic as it could be, so that eventually, when you know his you know, Barcelona team hit a wall, and they get absolutely destroyed by AC Milan, is that while his team may well have you know slid, is that the actual ideology, the organisational structure behind the scenes meant that when you then get to Guardiola several years later after Rijkaard is that you then have unimaginable levels of success based off of the you know Messi Xavi Iniesta all of these players who had gone through the youth system and then that underpins the success that you know Spain have at international foot level So I guess my point with regards to competitive balance would be that let's say that the Abu Dhabi, you know, don't take over Man City. Suppose they decided for whatever reason that they were gonna take over Southampton or Bournemouth or any team that was was in the football league. Yeah, you know, any one of the, you know, seventy one teams in the football league, seventy two teams even in the football league. Let's say they'd taken over Barnet. Right now, where would Barnet be if they were owned by the Abu Dhabi conglomerate? They would be in the Premier League. They would be in the top 10 of the Premier League. I can guarantee you that. If you spend 2 billion on anything, you will get success. The point my argument is, should Barnet be a top-level Premier League club? Absolutely not. I grew up in Barnet. I've many hours of my life at Underhill. Love the club. But no, they are not a Premier League team. But if the Abu Dhabi, you know, consortium have turned up, yes, they would. Would Southampton have won the Premier League if Abu Dhabi had taken over? Yes. So that's completely, you know, so that's got nothing to do with you know the Matt Letitia Southampton team. It has nothing to do with the Kevin Keegan Southampton team that finished third. Much in the same way that the success of you know man city in the early 70s has virtually nothing to do with the success they're having now effectively all man city you know offer abu dhabi is that 5% in other words it took 5 years less you know being if they t- by taking over man city than it would if they had taken over southampton much in the same way that it would take 5 years more you know, if to get Barnett into the Premier League if you've taken over Barnett instead of Southampton, and that's my concern about you know competitive balance I mean if you look at it and I think this is what it, it comes almost to a sort of political point is that what are the, team, the fans of the elite and by elite I mean man united man city and I'd say Chelsea. To an extent you might say Liverpool. To an extent you might say Arsenal. But I think they're a slightly different group. In terms of the three big clubs. Man Man United are different. I'll talk about Man United in a little bit. But let's just focus on Chelsea and Man City. Just to make a point. The key question is. What did is there any point in chelsea's history from 1905 onwards and anything in man city's history that really stated that this club that these two clubs should finish in the top 4 every single year and if they don't finish in the top 4 that it would be a huge deal So the question is is that we know that to an extent some of their success is artificial that it's Roman Abramovich's money that it's the Abu Dhabi money and organizational structure now we know Chelsea have effectively a modern ideology that really comes from Roman Abramovich so in other words they're a team that effectively can run on chaos in other words they don't you know man united to have success You need Matt Busby. You need Sir Alex Ferguson. Every other Manchester United manager in modern history... ...have nowhere near the level of success that those two men have. So the wider point really should come down to this. Is that... ...should football teams have ideologies? So in other words is PSG's ideology of getting these very talented very successful very famous you know forward players and bringing them into league 1 and you know annihilating you know overmatched teams who have nowhere near the finances or the ability to compete on a level playing field because as we discussed that is entirely you know there's a commercial and a political imperative to it in other words psg need to have famous success for it to be the huge amount of money that the qataris have invested for it to have the political aspect so the soft power and the ability to then use that platform to then help you know get the world cup which then has again you know huge soft power implications i you know should Manchester City, you know, have you know, put all of this emphasis, so in other words, all of the years of, you know, huge amount of resource put into the East Manchester campus that they have, you know, in terms of having a fantastic, you know, world leading youth academy, when effectively they have absolutely no need for a world class youth facility. And there's a regulatory question in there as well. But, you know, so and they, the amount of money that they've put into the, the women's football, which is you know effectively, I wouldn't call it a loss leader, but it's not something that they absolutely need. So, in other words, for whatever, think of it like a Christmas tree, whatever extra tints or whatever extra baubles they put on there, there has to be a fundamental reason for it, much in the same way that the concept of the City Football Group. So in other words, the training facilities for the uh, New York FC look identical to the ones in Manchester, identical to ones in Melbourne, and the question really is, is that if you look at the players that um, MUFC have, sorry, New York FC have created, so uh, Jack Harrison. Who's currently now playing in England for Leeds United, and if you look at the uh, Melbourne team, the that they have in the Australian A League, the best player that they've got from there is Aaron Moy, who went to Man City, was then immediately loaned and later sold for ten million pounds to Huddersfield Town, and it's been a successful, you know, probably league average, maybe slightly above league average playmaker. You know, he's on. I think he scored once in the last year. Jack Harrison is not Man City good quality, doesn't have the quality to play for Man City in their midfield, as is presently, you know. know, He might well become a Premier League player, might even become an England international. But at the moment, for Man City, he is not valuable in that regard. Neither is Aaron Moy. So you think of the amount of effort that's infrastructurally been put into, you know, Melbourne, New York's FC, the... Other, you know, satellite football clubs that they have dotted around the world, is that it's not going to produce any players that would have a legitimate, you know, chance of getting in at Man City as they are currently built. And the money that you've got, like the ten million pounds that you've got for Aaron Moy, and the any sort of money you get from Jack Harrison, it's not enough. It's still a lost leader. Which means that they're doing it for other reasons. There's a soft power element to it. So that means that you're, you know, establishing yourself in Australia, you're establishing yourself in Asia, you're establishing yourself in Latin America, and you're using every single bit. So in other words, what you're, you know, the, what what is the end product? what is the best case scenario for having all of these satellite football teams? Is that. On the off chance that you get a Messi. So in other words, if the Australian Messi or the American Messi rocks up on your doorstep, you then have the in to then get him to Man City. It's unlikely. It's, you know, one in a million shot. It's, you know, need to win a haystack time. But that's the key point to it, is that there's no profit margin to it. So in other words, there's nothing in it for... Tottenham to have a satellite team. There's nothing in it for Southampton to have a satellite team. So there's a political element. There is soft power at work and showing that there's, you know, it's basically a way of saying we are so well run, we are so well organised and we are, you know, doing great things all across the world. Is that it's hiding what's actually happening in Abu Dhabi, which is repressive, any number of different things. You don't need me to tell you. It's all available online if you want to look up you know what the actual political situation is and that my argument would be is that if you put a vote to the people in Abu Dhabi do you want to spend your money on you know your sovereign wealth as a country on Man City I think most people would you know man on the street woman on the street would not vote for Man City to get that money I don't think they care meaningfully speaking, you know I don't think there is a majority of people that give a rat's ass what Man City are doing in the league. And this is my issue when it comes to the culpability of fans. So in other words, you've had a situation where the only protest that I've ever seen for Man City fans is protesting against UEFA. So they were booing the UEFA anthem, they were you know, angry at UEFA for the fair play fine. They thought it was unfair. And to an extent, they did have an argument. That What they were saying was is that, effectively, the money that was being put into Man City, that they didn't have debt, and that the fine was unfair, in comparison to someone like Man United, who have a huge debt, and that, you know, the way how fair, fair play was calculated was, you know, detrimental to them, but allowed other people to do get away with other things now my point is is that you know they skirted around it you know in other words both you know PSG man city a few other clubs but you know the the two most obvious cases were PSG and man city in deliberately inflating you know the value of their con- of their um, commercial contracts you know their sponsorship deals with you know interlinked entities that you know that were related to the ownership of the club and and as a result, what you've had is um has been a huge amount of emails that have now been basically leaked out that sort of relate to this and the conversations that the UEFA secretary at the time, Gianni Infantino, who's now obviously the head of FIFA, you know, in terms of what Man City's aggression was towards these. Um, investigations so in other words they were going to you know if they were banned from Europe which is one of the more hard harsher penalties that you know the fair play initiative had that they were going to sue and that they were basically going to fight tooth and nail. and eventually you know the sort of end product was is that Man City played I think a 20 million pound fine which for them and the amount of money that they put in is you know, cost of doing business. It's it's a write off. It's a okay. You can't now sign another. You know, twenty million pound midfielder who's might play fifteen times or you know, be on the bench and be loaned out. It it wasn't. In other words, if they if basically UEFA said, do you want to pay twenty million just to get end an end around the rules? They'd happily put the twenty million straight into <laughs> thing without a second thought. And I think that's my. Disappointment, I suppose, to an extent, is that there isn't enough, there isn't people, you know, Man City fans sitting there arguing, well, is this right? Is this right that this football club is now one of the biggest football clubs in the world that is so dominant, that is winning 5 0 most, you know, seemingly once a month, Man City seem to win 5 0 at home. And there's not really, and I've, I've had this discussion with Chelsea fans before saying, well, Why was there, there there doesn't seem to be a huge sway of people that have any issue with Roman Abramovich and the way how he runs Chelsea? So, there was no concerns about the youth team players, you know, the fact that they were developing these talented youth players and yet they were never getting a chance because the sort of win now mentality means that the manager isn't it, you know, no Chelsea manager has had enough. I suppose political capital or even desire to blood in, you know, the youth products. Even when things have gone wrong, even when they've had a crisis or when they finished, you know, mid-table, that still wasn't enough to shift the emphasis of the club to saying, "Okay, we're not going to qualify for the Champions League. We're not going to win the Champions League. Why don't we try these kids? We're definitely not going down." They didn't, and they didn't develop. You know, it's not as if they had. Let's say they had an opportunity to put. One of their youth team coaches in charge when they had that horrible season and they sacked Mourinho after winning the league. And using the youth kids and then in the summer making a decision on whether these kids are good enough. That didn't happen. And you know, so there's, there's Chelsea fans that are angry about losing Salah, De Bruyne, any number of sort of, what you know, Effectively, have become short-term, you know, short-sighted decisions by Chelsea that have had long-term implications. But there doesn't seem to be anyone that's willing to effectively stand up to Robin and Bradley, because effectively, what that's saying is if he basically pulls the plug, Chelsea are probably unlikely to be able to compete, you know, without somebody else wanting to basically rock up and throw a huge amount of money at the club. Now, the point is, is that Roman Abramovich you know, has a huge desire to win and loves owning Chelsea. I think that's fairly self-evident. But at the beginning, there was an element of politics to it. In other words, by owning Chelsea FC, it was a way of giving him a, a platform of which to basically enter public life And effectively nullify the, what could potentially, you know, effectively a way in to English society and a way that laundered his reputation. So in other words, he was known as Roman Abramovich, owner of Chelsea, rather than Roman Abramovich, you know, Russian oligarch and... And the baggage that comes with with that. In other words, where did this money come from? How did you get there? And you, yeah, there's been several sort of libel trials, and you know, effectively, you know, you, you, there's been a handful of books that have really tried to get into it, but it's not something that has ever got huge amounts of viewership among football fans as a whole. In other words, I haven't read a book about how Roman Abramovich got his money. You know, and eventually, after a few years of the dolby thing, it eventually faded and people effectively lost the ability to get bothered by it. Much in the same way that a large amount of dealing with Man City is people that have just got tired of talking about Abu Dhabi and the implications of it. It's much easier to sit there and go, they play beautiful football and look at Guardiola and all the rest of it And basically ignore the elephant in the room that there's a reason that they are putting this huge amount of money into Man City. And not really wanting to take the implication that, that leads from it. That effectively competitive balance is damaged. And we're reaching a stage now where effectively... You know, the Leicester thing, and and that the Leicester title win, I think, managed to act as a almost like a mirage. Is that I fundamentally believe that the Premier League, in comparison with all the other main European leagues, has a decent competitive balance in other words you've had Leicester winning the league you've had Tottenham competing for the title you've had Liverpool compete you've had Chelsea compete you've had you know Man City compete and to an extent you've had United there and thereabouts so but it's a very narrowing window so the problem is is that now Leicester are nowhere near Everton are nowhere near so one of my if you look at I've, I've always had this, and it's a somewhat contentious point. It's it's that, on a visceral level, people wanted Leicester to win the title. It was a beautiful narrative story, the passion of the fans. It makes a good 90-minute movie. You know, so like, Vardy the movie. It has a feel-good ending to it. And there's this, like, you know, obviously you've had the tragedy of the... You know, Leicester owner and the helicopter crash. And you even in the second season after they won, they had that wonderful run in the European Cup and the Champions League. But, unfortunately, it's one of those situations where it's a, a feel-good movie. It's only 90 minutes. And actually, the feel-good feeling actually really dissipates once you sort of look into the... I suppose the wider picture. So if you were Everton Football Club and you're one of the sort of top eight English football clubs of historically. You have a huge fan base in Liverpool. You've been in the league for years and, years and years and years and years and years. And yet, if you were to try and learn anything from the Leicester title win to help you and Everton get to that level. There's nothing there. In other words, the process by which Leicester spent a huge amount of money building the Walkers Stadium and the financial fallout from that one and the terrible decision making and getting relegated from the Premier League and then getting relegated from the Championship, spending a couple of years in League One and going through managers, spent you know having different owners until eventually you know the King Power conglomerate and family took over and they they were good owners. But there's also an element that I always feel a bit sad about it when I think about it. Is that effectively, yeah, it's a political connotation to it. Is that the reason that that family was so loved is what they had done for the football club and the town as a whole, or city as a whole? But he was a billionaire, and he was a you know from everything that I've read about him, he seems to be a you know straight up bloke he was friendly, he was, and he ran the football club pretty well, in comparison with other, you know, foreign owners that have come in and just not understood, thrown money at things and made all manner of mistakes. I mean, look at Charlton as your, you know, exemplar of how things can go horribly wrong, or the Leighton owner and how things have gone wrong there. It's Far easier for things to go horribly wrong than they are for things to go right, especially when you're a billionaire and how that insulates you from real life. And but it's just how neglected Leicester was at a place that really all it took was you know to put two million pounds into helping a children's hospital be built, um, giving a we- uh, helping um, fund the reinterment of Richard the Third. Yeah, just a handful of other bits and pieces, which for a billionaire is really loose change, but it shows you just how neglected that place felt. That you know, one of a major English city, that all it took was literally, you know, effectively for a billionaire loose change to get that amount of love. You know, he was well loved even before you know they won the Premier League, and it really is in some way a. An indictment of how some things have gone wrong in this country to that extent that literally all you know that it took a Thai billionaire to come in to you know establish Leicester you know as a Premier League club and you know to have that sort of love that uh, the whole city had for him and that surely surely you know government. And this country as a whole shouldn't have a situation where a place feels so downtrodden that they are desperate for, you know, effectively a, you know, an angel to come, you know, effectively an angel to sort of rock up and, you know, spread magical fairy dust and make things nicer. In other words, you know, you should have a children's hospital. You shouldn't be relying on somebody, you know, rocking up and throwing two million pounds at it as a way of, you know, gaining, you know. gaining brownie points because at some level taking over Leicester and the the phenomenal success that Leicester had was that there was an element of soft power to it in other words there's a reason that the stadium is called the King Power Stadium there's a reason that King Power is you know over the shirt on the you know as the shirt sponsor it was a way of you know practically helping you know his company gain a a global, a global reach that had he not taken over Leicester City, might not have happened. So, in other words, it you know it wasn't wholly a an out alt, fully altruistic thing. That's not in any way, shape, or form. You know, that's not me criticizing. But you know, it there was still an element of business to it, and that, and the, as fantastic an owner as he was, is that the element of how he wanted Leicester City to become successful once they got back into the Premier League was I want to finish in the top five, I'm willing to throw I think it was £180 million. It might have been 80 or £180 million, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. But he was willing to throw a huge amount of money at it. And that was his belief of what it would take. You know, the fact that, you know, Vardy and, you know, Danny Simpson, the, you know, Huth, and Morgan, and Drinkwater, and all of, you know, and the sort of low-level signings of Mares and Ngole Kante, you know, that wasn't the plan. You know, effectively, they, you know, those players were there to establish Leicester City in the Premier League, and if a handful of them, you know, basically not, didn't sink and were able to swim, fantastic. But, They were going to throw money at it and the money was then going to, you know, help push Leicester into the upper echelons and that actually it was just, you know, happenstance in effect that all of those players played a huge role in Leicester winning this title. But coming back to sort of the Everton thing is that if you're Everton, you can't sit there and say, Well, let's tank to get into, you know, League One, where we'll then be able to hoover up a handful of, you know, Wonderful talents that had been ignored for whatever reason, uh, you know, bargain prices. We will then rush up through, you know, League One, you know, Championship, get back into the Premier League. We'll sign a couple of, you know, you know, you know low level prospects from, you know, France, and we'll then put an eccentric, you know, uh, underappreciated manager in charge, and you know, ooh, look, you're in the Champions League, you're winning the league, that that, it's unrepeatable in that regard. It's something that happens every sort of 20, 30 years, every sort of generation. You know, you I've, I've talked about this before. You've got Verona in Italy. You've got Nottingham Forest to an extent under Clough. You've got maybe the Burnley team of the early 60s. Yeah, it happens, but it's not something that... It is lightning. And, it you know, lightning doesn't strike twice, to use a you know, sporting cliche. And so... In some ways, to to end part one of this, I'm going to do a series, there's probably going to be a couple more podcasts after this, is to really say that while viscerally people wanted Leicester City to win, if you were actually talking in purely competitive balance terms, it would have actually been better for Spurs to have won the league. Now obviously you can shout at me and say, you're a Tottenham season ticker, of course you'd say winning the league would be beneficial. But the point is if if you're Everton and you look at the way how Daniel Levy had built that squad with Maurizio Pochettino, there was a method, a mythology that you could use. So in other words, it was, you know, spending money on youth development. It was, you know, accurate scouting. In other words, picking out the right players and developing a core team. And then picking the right manager, who then basically fits into the ideology that you created, and a budget that you know is a budget that is feasible. In other words, Tottenham were able to spend money, but it wasn't earth shattering amounts of money that you know Man City, Man United, Chelsea, and to an extent Liverpool and Arsenal were playing. In other words, Everton could imagine picking out a Delhi Alley. You know, making signings from the Dutch League, you know, sort of and Ericsson, and to an extent road who was admittedly at Atletico Madrid and was on loan at Southampton. But is those sort of signings that Everton could imagine making, and then getting a somewhat untested manager, but who was, you know, brilliant, who had the ability to develop and implement what the leadership wanted. So in other words, they wanted a young, cost-controlled team and to play good football. And that is something that Everton could work towards. And for the fans themselves, I think there's a... I've come across this in all sort of walks and forms of football life. Is people that, when they find out that I'm a Spurs fan and a season ticket holder, have sort of they always mention the, oh, you had a chance to win the title. And these are people who are often Chelsea fans, Liverpool fans, United, City fans, you know, fans of, you know, mid-table Premier League clubs. And they all seem to have that, they ask the same sort of question of, you should have won the league. And, you know, and I think what it comes down to is, on some level, I think you could argue it may be guilt, is that... Once the sheen of Leicester winning the league wore off, and Leicester basically regression to the mean went straight back down to effectively where they were under sort of Martin O'Neill, which is mid-table club that on a good day can you know have a cup run. Might you know if everything goes well, might finish in the top half of the table. If things you know drop off a little bit, they might finish eleventh, twelfth, fourteenth. Is that you? Then really, all are left is. Sort of Tottenham is that one sort of team that is not a huge monolithical football club, you know in the sense that you know man City are in the sense that Chelsea are in the sense that United are, and the problem is is that there's an ideology element to it, in other words, you have man City's ideology, which is all about everything has to look effortless it's like a swan you know essentially the water has to look placid so if whatever work is happening underneath the you know water line isn't seen so in other words you, you rarely have the the owner never comes out with uh, outrageous statements you know the you know there's no you know public relations gaffes you know everything is always very structured in other words the football has to be very good yeah you know, and the emphasis always has to be on you know they get the right manager and they're willing to wait, in other words, when they sack people, it's never you know sacked rashly, you know everything is always very ordered, and so the way how all of the satellite clubs are run, everything is run on a very professional basis, and as a result, it's a way of giving off the impression that. It almost asks this sort of leads to this sort of question: is that, well, they can't be that bad. Look at the football that they've, they've, you know, essentially underwritten. Look how wonderful it is. Look at how well organized, how well run it is. Look at all of the great things they've done in East Manchester, which you know, obviously before all of this money was put in, was a very neglected and very deprived part of you know East Manchester. And so you're left with, well, it can't be all bad, and that's the success of it. Much in the same way that the fact that we don't constantly mention that Roman Abramovich is a an oligarch, and obviously with all of the the political connotations that that's had, with you know, you know, with Vladimir Putin's Russia and the you know, rumored involvement in the American election and the rumors of the involvement in Brexit, and all these other bits and pieces, you, people don't mention that, and. And the damage it does to competitive balance. In the sense that obviously you've now got a situation where Tottenham had to spend a huge amount of money to build a stadium. Everton are having to build a huge stadium. But it's not just building a stadium so that you can get more fans in. So you can get 50,000, 60,000 people into your stadium. It has to be everything else that comes with it. So you have to. it has to be part of a wider development. You need flats. You need shops. You need every bit and pieces. So bit. i know one of the things that is most sort of criticized about the um, new tottenham stadium is this the cheese room now i'll probably talk about it in slightly more detail but in the next podcast or the podcast after that but there's a the idea is is that there's a reason that tottenham have had to spend all this money on the stadium there's an emphasis on some level that they need a cheese room the point is is that you could have built a stadium that's 50, 60,000 that didn't cost as much as the one that Tottenham have built, and it would probably have been ready a bit quicker. but the point is is that even adding 20, 20, 30,000 more you know 25,000 more fans into the White Hot Lane from what its ex- previous capacity was would not change the financial bands. Arsenal, Liverpool, Manor, all of those clubs are exponentially bigger. And especially City, and to a latter extent Chelsea. And the money that they're willing to, to throw at it. So the point is, is that you have to then effectively try and maximise every single last bit of revenue that that football club can make. So that you know, you're know you in a better position to compete. Because the thing, all the bits and pieces that you used to be able to use. So for example, youth development. In other words, if you were a brilliantly successful football club, you might not spend as much money on youth development. But Man City do, even if they don't use it. So if you look at it, Jaden Sancho has done nothing to help Man City. He's currently playing for a Borussia Dortmund. Phil Foden is a you know, brilliant, wonderfully talented you know, attacking midfielder that you know, will eventually presumably captain England. Might even get 100 caps, might lead us to the World Cup. Development is currently at the moment stalled because he just cannot get into the Man City team and the minutes that he is getting aren't particularly valuable. So then you go and say, well, you know, look at Chelsea. Look at all the sort of youth talent that they create. They keep winning the Youth Cup every single year and yet none of those players seemingly have much of a chance of breaking in. If you look at the issues that Ruben Loftus-Cheek has had, just getting, you know, onto the bench... You know, has taken a huge amount of effort every single year you know the gap widens and the problem that i see is that the angst that people sort of come to me when they talk about you know why didn't tottenham win seems to almost come from a place of well if you had won then that validates that you know the that the competitive balance is still there is that you can do everything right. So in other words, you know, run a you know, transfer budget that isn't you know, huge amounts of money, and that you can sell players and that you can balance the books, that the football club can be run on a sustainable way and be successful at the absolute upper ends. And that it wasn't a fluke, which is what Leicester was. And so then it allows the person, the football fan who's saying it to me, to then absolve themselves of any guilt. Ah, you see, Tottenham have won the league. It, you know, Roman Abramovich's expenditure isn't destroying football, or you know, Abu Dhabi isn't damaging competitive balance. So the point, you know, really, in some way, shape, or form, the argument that you can say about the European Super League is: I think it's wrong. I wouldn't want anything to do with it. But on some level, what you know, the, the those clubs that were Organising that was doing was just pointing out the obvious is that really, Bayern Munich, Juventus, uh, Barca, Real, Man City, Chelsea, they're all running on a completely different level to anybody else in European football anyway. So really, you know, they're just pointing out the the blindingly obvious is that there isn't competitive balance really in Italy, France spain germany and that you know they might as well basically admit that they are a completely different level from everybody else so they might as well play each other because really you know effectively what is the point of you know red star belgrade really playing liverpool it's not competitive it's not competitive when they play you know psg you get these ridiculous you know five six nils and what I what I never see from anyone, you know, Man City fans, Arsenal fans, Man United fans, Liverpool fans, Chelsea fans, is what they would be willing to give up. Would they be willing to, you know, give up this artificial success that this money has created? And, effectively, the slow rot damage that it does to football. You know, so really what they want is, they almost want Tottenham to win the league, so that then that means that the money hasn't ruined everything and yet at the same time what i'd want to say to people is why don't you what would you rather want and this is what i'll end this podcast saying do you want this artificial success that will inevitably at some point lead to effectively a invite only european super league or would you rather competitive balance where, yes, you don't finish in the top four every single year, but it's far more meritocratic rather than who's, you know, who's, you know, oligarch, who's, you know, sovereign wealth fund. You know, my point is I don't think that football clubs should have ideologies. It shouldn't be about Man City spreading, you know soft power on behalf of Abu Dhabi it shouldn't be PSG doing soft you know power work for Qatar it shouldn't be you know Chelsea as a way of you know laundering Roman Abramovich and giving him a you know public persona that is largely positive football should be you know winning out on the field it shouldn't be winning in you know winning in the winning in the soft power in the you know marginal fringe benefits for the owners it should be about the play on the field thank you for listening